Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everyone. This is Reed Galen, and I'm here with Rick, Steve, and Stuart, and we're going to get to our show. But before we do, we wanted to address the John Weaver situation. Last night on Lincoln Project Television, Rick shared our collective thoughts on the matter. Here it is. Hey, folks, I want to talk to you tonight about John Weaver. And it's not an easy story to tell. Over the weekend, on Sunday, the New York Times published a story about John Weaver, one of the seven co-founders of the Lincoln Project. That story was about contacts with John that began in 2014 while he was working for John Kasich with a young man, a young man of 14 years. This was the first time we'd heard this story, first time we'd had any information about John contacting a child. And I have to tell you, it shocked us, disgusted us. It left us in a state of absolute just dread over the fact that, that a child could have been victimized by John Weaver. He kept up that relationship for five years, apparently, until the child was an adult. Doesn't excuse it, doesn't make it better, makes it worse. John was using his power and position and prestige to try to manipulate young gay men. It wasn't that John was gay. I don't care about that. It was that John was trying to, to, to manipulate people using the positions he had in presidential campaigns and then in the Lincoln Project unacceptable in every dimension. Every one of us rejects it utterly. When the stories that had hit a few weeks ago, uh, when John confessed to these inappropriate and unprofessional contacts and, and attempting to, to trade you know, his favor for favors, we were just, it was, it was over right then. You know, no matter what he had denied prior to this at any point, it didn't matter. He confessed it. It was done. We terminated our relationship immediately. We were blunt about it. It was done. But this story was something that it, I wish we'd had some knowledge of it. I wish we'd known somehow, some way. I wish we could have peered into that vortex of secrets that defined his life and known he was engaged in conduct with a 14-year-old boy at any point. I don't care if it was 10 years ago or five years ago or 25 years ago. The reaction would have not been, John, what do you do? It would be, John, stand by. We're calling law enforcement because it's, it's, it's an outrage. And I say this not as a, a co-founder of the Lincoln Project. Um, I, I say this as a dad. And Stephen Reed and I are all fathers. You know, Stephen, I have kids his, his, he's got a son who's 14. I've got a son who's 22. I mean, these kids are, are they're so close to the age of the people John was, was, was prowling after. It's just insane. And it, it it's just, it's just, it, it's so, it makes me furious. 
And I got to say this. John's, John's behavior with these kids left a string of people who he victimized in, in varying degrees and capacities. And so many of them were intimidated into silence because he was a powerful man. You know, for four years now, my kids have been victimized. They've been stalked. They've been harassed. They've had rape threats and death threats because I opposed Donald Trump. And that's a burden they had to bear. And they've been great kids. And they're amazing kids. But the thought of this guy doing this to other people's kids, it sickens me to the core and all of us. And it sickens me even more that he was so profoundly dishonest for so long to so many people and was so good at hiding his true self. And I'm sure John's watching this now and he's angry and he feels like he's being called out and called something he, he disagrees with. Well, tough shit. Okay. He has earned this. He has earned every bit of this. We're an organization that believes in accountability. We're going to hold ourselves accountable for letting someone like this slip past the gates and it'll never happen again. This mission is too important. The work we've done is too important. Millions of Americans have entrusted us to help lead a fight against an anti-American and anti-democratic movement. They trusted us to help lead a fight against Donald Trump and Trumpism. It's a fight that isn't over yet. We still have these people trying to regain power. And, and the attacks that are coming on us from Donald Trump Jr. and all these other people, they're gleeful. They love, what Don, they love the gift that John Weaver gave them. They're delighted by it. They are, are, they're, 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 they're dying for us to in some way defend John Weaver or to tell you we knew in some way. But I will never, ever be able to replicate the pain we felt learning this on Sunday when that article hit. It was, it was intense. We didn't feel it just as guys in a political organization. We felt it as dads and fathers. Um, we felt it as, 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 you know, one of the, one of the people in our organization uh, immediately got death threats against her two five-year-old kids. I mean, this, what he's given them is a weapon in their hands, but we have a different weapon. We have truth, commitment, and a passion for this mission that we're on that we will not let John Weaver's behavior alter. We will not let what he did change our intention and our commitment to the millions of people who've supported us. This mission goes on. We will be in it every day. We will never stop fighting for this country. We love and appreciate so many people who have come to our side, who've, who've walked with us, who've fought for us, who've donated us, who've helped us, who've carried our message and our mission forward. It is too important. It is vital that we move this, this country forward, away from Trumpism. They only need to win one more election ever, and it's all gone. So we're going to keep this fight up. We want to say to the victims of John Weaver, the people that he exploited, the people that he attempted to manipulate, um, if you want to come to us and speak out, speak to us. If you want to speak out in public, speak out in public. If you want to talk to the news media, talk to the news media. We encourage you to do so. We hope you'll do so. We'll be here for you and with you. We will keep this um, 
th- this matter. If you want to keep it quiet and just want to yell at me or yell at Steve or yell at Reed or yell at Stuart or yell at any of us and say, how did you not know? I'll talk to you till the phone's dead. Okay. We'll keep it quiet if you want it quiet. We'll put it out if you want it put out. We believe in transparency. We believe in honesty. We believe in directness. We're going to give you that at every turn. I hope that you will continue to repose the confidence you've shown in us for the last year. We will earn it from you every day. We'll keep this mission going. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. For today's episode, I'm joined by my fellow Lincoln Project co-founders, Steve Schmidt and Rick Wilson, as well as Senior Lincoln Project Advisor, Stuart Stevens. We're talking about the upcoming February 9th Senate impeachment trial, as well as Mitch McConnell's recent condemnation of Marjorie Taylor Greene. So let's jump right into the impeachment, which is, of course, the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump, this one taking place after he's left office. And I think it's important to point out that this ongoing impeachment process has been a continuous example of the Republican Party trying to delegitimize an absolutely necessary and appropriate process for our nation's healing after the storming of the Capitol. But first, let's hear from Donald Trump's new lawyer, yet another new lawyer, David Schoen, about how he sees the trial, and then we'll take it from there. Besides the fact that this process is completely unconstitutional, and that this is a very, very dangerous uh, road to take with respect to the First Amendment, putting at risk any uh, passionate political speaker, uh, which is um, really an, uh, against everything we believe in in this country, foundation of the First Amendment. But I'm going to tell you, I think it's also the most ill-advised legislative action that I've seen in my lifetime. It is tearing the country apart at a time when we don't need anything like that. I think President Biden missed a great opportunity to be a statesman and to have demanded that this thing be called off, frankly. Um, this is the political weaponization of the impeachment process. I would just like to say, Stuart, I'll turn it over to you. Apparently, all these super lawyers who went to law school have no understanding of what it is the First Amendment actually means. Um, you know, we saw this with Hawley, too, regardless of his you know various complaints. But Donald Trump yelled fire in a movie theater the size of the United States of America. That does not seem to me to be covered by First Amendment protections and the idea that passionate political speech and incitement to violence somehow live in the same world uh, just, I think, shows to me just how ridiculous their defense will be because they know it's indefensible. You know, one of the things that drew me many years ago to the Republican Party was a sense of personal responsibility. Reagan had a great line that we have to quit blaming society and start taking responsibility ourselves. What you have here, Trump, Hawley, Cruz, you have some of the most powerful men in the country, people who uh, have been well-educated, wealthy, have every access to the levers of power who are trying to position themselves as victims instead of taking responsibility for what they did. And I think it just shows the total hollowness that is at the core of the Republican Party. Why does the Republican Party exist now? As far as I can tell, it only exists to beat Democrats. And that's not really an organizing principle of a political party. That's like a cartel. Why does OPEC exist? Sell oil. There's no higher purpose to it. And what I just find so depressing is there's so many of these people that uh, we all help work for. I certainly helped elect a lot of them. and 
I believed what they said when they said that they thought that rule of law was essential, that they thought personal responsibility was essential. And the idea that you can organize a coup against the United States to end democracy, what other proof do you have to believe that they believe in nothing but power? Yeah, let's be clear. Like, they haven't even apologized. They haven't said we're sorry, not in any real way, nor have they, you know, come out and totally stood up and said, we know all this stuff that happened post-election was a bunch of BS, and we did it because this is why we did it. Um, they continue to hide behind the, the deception and the lies of, you know, a stolen election and all that other stuff. And even as recently as last week, uh, 45 of 50 Republicans tried to have the impeachment measure tabled. You know, that does not seem to me, Stuart, to your point, to be a group of people who are interested in any sort of reflection or personal responsibility. Rick, what do you think? Reed, I, I think that this is a perfect exemplar of where the former Republican Party ended up. Say what you will about the tenets of national Trumpism, at least it's an ethos, is never going to be said. But they don't have anything underneath, as Stuart said, the desire for power. The will to power is their only thing now. They don't believe in fiscal responsibility. They don't believe in individual responsibility. They don't believe in, in free markets. They believe in owning the libs. They believe in the control of government, no matter how they get there. You know, it's not because they love conservative judges they want to stack the courts. It's that they want to achieve their ends however they can. They know they can't pass 99% of what they want politically. So they try to say, okay, well, we'll just do it through the courts. So they depend on, on this sort of outside infrastructure to browbeat and intimidate people and to make them live in fear. And right now you've seen the Republican Party's leadership. Look, Kevin McCarthy's not the minority leader anymore. It's Marjorie Taylor Greene. Well, and we'll get to her, but Steve, let me ask you this. I mean, you take someone like a Rob Portman from Ohio or a Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania. They're retiring. Richard Burr is retiring from North Carolina. What is it that holds them in place when they have no political sanction at this point that's facing them? The more the outcome of any Senate trial is known in advance, right, where we know there's an absolute unwillingness for the Republican senators to obey their oath, to consider the evidence, that they intend to nullify the evidence because something is of higher importance to them than truth. And that is loyalty to a man, loyalty to Trump, right? That's the choice. Choices between loyalty to the Constitution loyalty to the evidence, loyalty to their duty, or, or loyalty to Trump. And it looks like, just as an aside, it looks like a bunch of them are going to be two-time losers on this front. Right. Absolutely. Right. So if you look, for example, at the Medgar Evers trial and Byron Della Beckwith, the cause of justice in time was served by the permanence of the record left behind by the immorality of the nullification of the murder evidence by the jury. So this one is for history. And everyone gets to decide, do they want to carve their name into the granite of ignominy? That after the fact, they refused to impose accountability on the lying and the incitements that led for the first time in the history of the United States the breach of the Capitol's rotunda by the flag of the Army of Northern Virginia, the Confederate battle flag? 
There's going to be no accountability for that, for the deaths of seven people. We had 147 members stand up and vote to throw out millions of black votes. There's got to be accountability. So, Stuart, let me ask you this, because there's there's a clear reason why, even if we all, I think, agree that it is an unacceptable reason why so many Republicans have already decided to acquit Donald Trump. But on the Democratic side of the aisle in the Senate, too, it looks like there are several who just sort of want this to go away. And I think, as we've said, you know, many times, I think, Steve, most forcefully, that democracy cannot be the weak side in this fight, in this argument. So what do you think goes on in the other side of the aisle as you see folks trying to just sort of move past this? Look, I think that um, it's probably a mix of emotions. One is a sense that there's a lot to do in the country. There's thousands of people dying every day. The economy uh, is in shambles. Our international reputation uh, is that certainly in our lifetime, uh, an, an all-time low. I think the only thing comparable would be maybe during the Vietnam War, the way the United States was seen. There's a lot of stuff to do. Um, and when you look at this and they say, okay, we know the outcome of this. Why do we need to go through this? So I, I kind of understand that. I think it's wrong, though. And I, I think just to speak to Steve's point about the Megar Evers trial, which happened in my hometown of Jackson, they tried to convict Byron de Lebeckwith twice. And the DA who did that was a guy named Bill Waller. He lived down the street from me. He was a good country lawyer, Christian in the best sense of the word, who really tried to convict Byron de Lebeckwith. And there were two hung juries. And I watched him because he was in and out of our house, almost driven insane by this. And Byron de Lebeckwith on the springboard of the positive publicity of being the man who shot unconvicted Medgar Evers, then ran for lieutenant governor of the state of Mississippi in 1967. And his slogan was a straight shooter. I still have one of his banners. So it's just an indication of where once you accept the ultimate transgressions, you kill a man in his driveway, you attempt to overthrow the government of the United States, the world's oldest democracy, and there's no repercussions for that. Where does it lead? It is absolutely toxic. And it also just allows the continuation of this lie that millions and millions of people now believe that they do not live in a democracy. The consequences of this, I think, are just beginning. We live in a heavily armed country with a history of revolution, and you have a, millions of people who believe that they have an illegal president. How's that going to work out? So just one thing. I know everyone's heard of the Kevin Bacon game, but it should really be the Stuart Stevens game, which is Stuart is never more than three steps away from some significant happening in American history, which I've, oh, I've just found as Stuart and I've got to know each other better over the last year. Just an amazing thing. And, you know, Stuart, actually, let me go back to you just real quick, because you said something about in another far off place, you were doing some work once that in a democracy, somebody has to be willing to lose. And that seems to be something that the Republican Party right now is unwilling and unable to accept as sort of a core tenet of how the system works. Well, it, it is. You know, I first heard that sort of obvious truth, but sometimes obvious truths are profound. I was working in the Congo uh, for the attempt to have the first election since the Civil War, a civil war that really never got the sort of attention of the horror. Four to five million people died in the Congolese Civil War. And the EU was attempting, with the United States support, but primarily an EU effort, to have an election. And they had this guy who was uh, 
worked for the UN, who had done elections in places like Afghanistan. And I was talking to him and he said, you know, Stuart, the thing about this democracy is somebody's got to be willing to lose. And I just thought it was so profound in looking at the Congo, which had not had an election ever. But to think that we now in the United States are saying this is just unimaginable. And Steve, so let's use this as a springboard to our next topic, because, you know, we'll be talking more about the impeachment trial as it develops and as it continues. But this week, uh, Mitch McConnell put out a statement from his office excoriating Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia's 14th congressional district. And she went on the attack, not surprisingly, saying that the problem with establishment Republicans with it was that they were graceful losers. And so just to you know, feed off what Stuart was talking about, about just the basics of how democracy works, what does it mean now that we've seen that McConnell, who clearly has not wanted to get in the middle of this, so pointedly took her on as I think, from my perspective, she is the surrogate. She is the voice of Donald Trump and, and the MAGA movement in this moment. For sure she is, right? And it's the ascendant movement. And because of that movement, Mitch McConnell lost his majority. He's now the minority leader. And there's a couple of interesting things about it. First off, that it's Mitch McConnell, right, is now the tip of the spear in fighting back against this, shows the depth of the recognition about how far and how deep this has infiltrated and pervaded the establishment of the Republican Party, right, that it is everywhere. The Republican Party has been consumed by it. And, you know, Mitch McConnell is appalled by Donald Trump, always has been. I think that Mitch McConnell's calculus was, you know, look, I didn't elect Donald Trump. The party picked Donald Trump. The American people elected him. I'm going to try to get as many judges confirmed as as possible. And he got a record number of judges confirmed. and. That has and will shape the American judiciary for a really long time. That being said, over the months of November and December in particular, American democracy was poisoned. I mean, you could do a Chernobyl style HBO movie about democracy being irradiated, being poisoned, like the BP Deepwater Horizon spill. That devastated the Gulf waters day by day, lie by lie, accumulating to the insurrection. And so you have the spectacle during the past week of the House minority leader, right? The president has been impeached by the House. He's the Republican leader of the House. He's with the impeached president down in Mar-a-Lago, pledging his loyalty, pledging his fidelity. And I haven't done a lot of media criticism over the last couple of years, and, and maybe I should, but it seems to me when the minority leader is down there and you have Matt Gates declare that Trump is literally the forever leader of the Republican Party and that he is the enduring leader of the America First movement. We should be able to see the fault lines that Liz Cheney is the conservative leader 
of a Republican democracy caucus. And Matt Gates is a senior lieutenant to Kevin McCarthy in a pro-autocracy, Trumpist, fascist caucus. That the America First movement, just like the last one 80 years ago, is a fascist movement with the menace of violence all around it. So, Rick, I want to come to you next. But before we do, I want I want to play the clip of what McConnell's statement actually said Then I want to come back to you. In a statement released by his office, McConnell said, and I quote, loony lies and conspiracy theories are cancer for the Republican Party and our country. Somebody who suggested that perhaps no airplane hit the Pentagon on 9-11, that horrifying school shootings were pre-staged and that the Clintons crashed JFK Jr.'s airplane is not living in reality. This has nothing to do with the challenges facing American families or the robust debates on substance that can strengthen our party. Okay, so, Rick, here's what struck me about that was that I'm not sure the last time I heard or I believed that Mitch McConnell was, A, worried about individual Americans, or B, robust debate within the Republican Party. What's going on here? Money. Mitch McConnell has seen the growing backlash from corporate America. He has seen the growing backlash uh, that is rejecting the people who were proximate to this attempt to overthrow our government. You know, the people like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and Rick Scott and Tommy Tuberville and Cindy Hyde-Smith and Ron Johnson. And he's reacting to this for no other reason than to get corporate America and Wall Street money back on side. He needs that to try to win in 22. He's desperate to do it. He believes that he can go out and play this role now of, oh, I'm going to I'm going to blast Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm going to blast somebody who I know is extreme and unacceptable because then I can go to corporate America and say, I'm the only barrier between you and the crazies. I don't think it's going to work as it might have in the past because he has accepted those people in his caucus. He hasn't expelled Josh Hawley. You know, Mitch McConnell, if you want to call bullshit on the crazies, then you throw Josh Hawley out of your caucus. You expel him. You'll get another Republican, but he's going to have to ride this and he's going to have to own this for a very long time, in my opinion. So, Stuart, do you think that McConnell's staring at the ghosts of 2010 or maybe the witches of 2010 and just sees what's coming down the pike here next year? Well, you know, I mean, look, McConnell had probably the worst 24 hours in the history of any majority leader in the country. Right. I mean, he went to bed on the fifth and was majority leader, woke up the sixth. He was minority leader and ended up hiding under his desk while his own party invaded the Capitol trying to kill members of Congress. That's like a bad day. And if that doesn't send a warning to you that something has happened terrible that you're in charge with, you know, Steve made a reference to Chernobyl. When I think of Mitch McConnell, I think of that Russian engineer, Anatol Dyatov, whatever his last name was. Dyatlov, yep. In charge of Chernobyl. And picture, you know, Mitch McConnell's there and he thinks that he can run this experiment and he can stress the system. And he can get the rods exactly right, in and out. He's going to get what he wants. And it never works. So what happens? I mean, what was the sixth but a giant meltdown? It was a political Chernobyl with the ramifications that it's going to pollute our politics for a very long time. McConnell is just someone, I think, who has no life outside of the Capitol, could not tell you in a million years what he really believes other than he would like to be in power. And I think that he saw thought history was going to record Donald Trump as his fool. And I don't think it's going to work out that way. So, Steve, in the construct that Stewart just laid out, isn't McConnell just the other side of the coin of a Marjorie Taylor Greene, just finding another way back to power? McConnell 
is repelled by these people, holds them in contempt. But McConnell thought that he could ride the tiger, that he could contain this, that he could use it. Mitch McConnell played the deck of cards that he was given in Mitch McConnell's worldview. And as this poison bleached out into the country to where it is now. But let's look at the speech of condemnation and and let's look at it with reality. It's indisputably true that the people who are wearing the red MAGA hats outside the Capitol, who included on that day at the rally that was supported by the Republican Attorney General's Association, however many senior White House aides, donors, members of Congress are meeting at the Trump Hotel apartment on the 5th, which is essential to know the facts of, that the crowd that becomes a mob that attacks as a seditious army the Capitol, they are all in coalition together. Fascist movements always include, at least at the beginning, before the fascists discharge the remnant conservatives who still believe in democracy, they are always coalitions of naive conservatives who think that they can ride the fascists to the achieving of their self-interested political means. I mean, we're just seeing history repeat itself. But you, you can't condemn Marjorie Taylor Greene without condemning the whole of the coalition of which she's a part. In fact, you have five or six state parties that are controlled by QAnon now, right? They are, they are inside Mitch McConnell's house. They are inside the, the, the conference and they are partners. They are in coalition. And as the civil war plays out, who's on offense and who's on defense? Right, the Marjorie Taylor Green side is on offense. And as we come into the primary season, I mean, Mitch McConnell understands that Rob Portman doesn't have the fight in him and doesn't have the fight to be in a race that he was going to lose to some Republican, QAnon, someone from the Marjorie Taylor Green side of the party. But I think the words are fine, but the words are delusional. And they also, personalize what's become a movement of which Marjorie Green, Lauren Boebert, and the next 25 of them are all a part of it. And it's an autocratic movement. It's led by Donald Trump, and it remains a cult of personality. And we're just seeing in this new season of defeat, where the mythology of the insurrection takes place and starts to come together on the right-wing websites and the right-wing mythology, the stab in the back. We'll see all that play out now. In that regard, Rick, then if we're mirroring history or if it's echoing for us, then we have the stab in the back followed by the beer hall putsch, which in this regard was the Capitol being sacked. And, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot because I've had conversations. What's the future of the Republican Party? What's the future? And I got to be honest with you. I've sort of come to the decision in my own head that if the Republican Party has a future, the country doesn't, at least as we know it. Yeah, I think you're right. And to drag the Nazi analogy a step further, because, you know, when the jackboot fits, wear it. Um, This whole pushed idea, the quote from Bannon that emerged from the day before 
Tomorrow's going to be wild. It's a day of maniacal focus. He was in that sort of Ernst Rome role. And this thing failed, and the dear leader went into exile. And essentially, these are guys trying to write their own new history of this country that is completely at variance with anything we ever claim to believe in, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, I mean, any American ever believed in, the hereditary nature of his power passing to his children, the divine right of Donald, where we can't treat anything that he says that's wrong or any mistake he makes as real. It has to be denied or erased. This is a cultural shift from what a Republican Party was to an authoritarian cult. Today's GOP is a lot closer to North Korea where you have the leader who is descended from the mountain and who cannot be wrong and who will live forever and who is the forever leader of the party. You have many more people in the GOP today who would, if they spoke Korean, they would fit right in in North Korea right now. They are obsessive and they're cult-like. And you know the Trumpian Juche is with us now for the duration, I think. So I think we're going to leave it there today. But I just want to thank Stuart, Steve, and Rick for joining me today. As we get into these next days and weeks, we'll be focused on the impeachment trial of Donald Trump, his second impeachment trial. I hope you'll come along with us on this journey as we all live history together. And we will see you next week. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Lincoln Project on your favorite podcast app and leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement and to join our mailing list, visit lincolnproject.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.